Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I'm your host, Nick Agar Johnson. The NBA season is finally underway, and with the return of the NBA season comes the return of the individual team deep dives. So we're starting off with the Toronto Raptors and Jordan Klingman. Jordan, how are you doing? Pretty good. The NBA is pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure that there's been a crazier opening night since I started following the NBA. Just in terms of two teams in the same division as the Raptors having major injuries in the first game of the season that will certainly change the course of, if not the Eastern Conference, and certainly the Atlantic Division. Yeah, like, you, you never know what to expect with the NBA. Like, in the off season, people are like, yeah, you know, it will die down at a certain point. It doesn't. And then when it comes back, even more craziness happens. So... I'm not going to expect anything. I'm just going to enjoy the ride. You mentioned the offseason, and the Raptors had a pretty active offseason. So let's start off with their two biggest contracts, namely the re-signings of Kyle Lowry and Serge Ibaka, both of them on three-year deals, Lowry's for $100 million and Ibaka's for $65 million. And I want to start with Lowry just because he is, if not the focal point of this team, which I would argue he still is, despite DeMar DeRozan's consistent improvement, he is certainly the engine that drives the offense. And it was an interesting move to sign Lowry to such a big contract, but I thought it was a huge win for the Raptors that they managed to get him on a three-year deal rather than a five-year max that would have paid him until his age 35 season. Yeah, like, I think just the market wasn't there to pay him that that max deal because like i know people are reporting he had interest in the spurs but they clearly didn't want to pay him a lot of money um so at by the time like free agency things were happening the raptors were the only ones that were willing to pay him uh like 100 million over three with those incentives so like he had to take it to come back he's a good player but I think a lot of people worry about the injury concerns now. I think the other thing that didn't exactly help Lowry on the market front is that point guard at this point is the most loaded position in the NBA. And outside of the Spurs, who, as you mentioned, weren't really willing to pay him as much as the Raptors were, there just weren't many teams either in free agency or just generally in the NBA that are in desperate need of a point guard. And the teams that are in need of a point guard weren't exactly looking for a 31 year old they are probably more like teams that are looking for younger point guards who can be the future of that position yeah like i think a lot of the, the good teams most of them had their point guard already i think it's some of the bad teams needed point guards but if you're a bad team why do you want to pay an aging vet like if he doesn't fit your timeline so it made sense from every angle for Lowry to come back. It made sense for the Raptors because the Raptors wouldn't have been able to replace him in free agency. With the cap situation, it, it just wouldn't have been possible to, to bring in somebody else. So uh, bringing back your own guys uh, makes make sense to keep, keep the asset rather than lose the asset for nothing. That is definitely an important point about the Lowry contract is that 
ultimately Toronto was going to be hurt a lot more by losing Lowry than really any of the other teams that might have been in competition for his services stood to gain by signing him to a big long-term deal. Yeah, and Lowry might have not been playing well for these first three games. I think people are like rushing their judgment. Oh, he's done all this. But I've noticed like often with older players, it takes time for them to work their bodies into form to start the season. So if people are concerned about Lowry, don't don't be concerned yet now. He's healthy. That's the important part. The other big re-signing of the Raptors offseason, the Raptors re-signed Serge Ibaka to a three-year, $65 million deal. And I wasn't particularly surprised that they re-signed him just because it wouldn't have made sense for them to trade for him as a rental last season. But I guess I was somewhat surprised at the final terms of the contract, I would have thought that the Raptors either would have opted to give him a longer contract or maybe something along the lines of a two-year $50 million deal where they could really see if his decline from his Oklahoma City days was more of a facet of trying to play in Orlando than it was of him actually being on the decline. And he certainly showed signs of being the player that he was for the Thunder last season for the Raptors, but his defense really has fallen off since then, and I'm not sure that's ever going to recover to the levels that his defense hit while he was a member of the Thunder. Well, when uh, the Raptors traded for Ibaka, Masai specifically said that it's not a rental. I think there probably was a wink-wink, nudge-nudge, and they felt out Ibaka and his agent at the time of the trade. But uh, you're right, Ibaka has declined... And also his game has sort of changed. Like, he's become a three-point shooter now, where a, that's where a lot of his value comes from, and it's not from those monster shot-blocking numbers he used to have in Oklahoma City. So he he's really a different player now, but for him to have his value, he needs to, he needs to be hitting those shots consistently. But at the same time, the Raptors had to bring him back. There was no, again, there was no other alternative they had Especially with Patterson uh, leaving, like that was mutual. Patterson didn't really want to come back. I think the Raptors didn't really want to bring him back. So, like again, like the power power forward is, is the Raptors' thinnest position. Uh, they they needed to keep Ibaka. And I guess that raises another question about Ibaka as well. Namely, he's playing power forward in Toronto, and that's clearly a position of need for them. But is he a better fit as a center in general? Not for this specific Raptors team where they have a few pure centers and he's not really going to get much time there. But given the way the NBA is moving, I'm not sure that Ibaka's best long-term position is in fact a power forward. And maybe the Raptors make some moves around trying to get him more minutes at center. But it seems like for the time being, there's really nowhere to put him other than a power forward. Yeah, it's kind of out of need. Um, last year was closing games at center. I have no problem with that. But uh, the other night when the Raptors were playing the Spurs, when Abaco was playing some center, the Raptors were getting killed on the glass. Like for a big man, he's not a particularly good rebounder. The uh, like the Raptors can play quicker. Uh, I think with him on the floor at center. But at the at the same time, if you're not rebounding it becomes an issue. And the thing with Ibaka is that while his numbers have fallen off in some other areas, most notably in terms of 
blocks. He's never really been that fantastic of a rebounder. He's only topped eight rebounds per game once in his career. That was the 2013-14 season in OKC. And in the last three years, he's averaged 6.8 boards, 6.8 boards, and so far in the first three games of this season, only 4.3 boards. Yeah, like, it, like it's a, it's a concern, but at the same time, like, he's, he's actively doing things, so I'm not severely worried about that, but at the same time, like, if the Raptors were to make a trade and he becomes like uh, playing thir- 30 minutes at center. I think you'd start to see uh, the Raptors rebounding numbers really dip. Now, moving on from their re-signings to their biggest signing of the offseason in CJ Miles, who sort of fills a position of need for the Raptors as a heavy volume three-point shooter. And he's been a big part of the reason why the Raptors' three-point attempt rate has climbed significantly since last season. But what are your thoughts on what you've seen from Miles so far this year? Uh, It's kind of what I expected. I think he had one unbelievable game where he's just, like, hitting, like, so many threes. I think he had one, like, hardly anything game. And then the other game, I think he was, like, average-ish. So it's like, you're going to get a lot of inconsistency. It's purely if he's making threes or not. Like, he doesn't do a lot else. But the Raptors really needed that. Like we don't we don't have many three point shooters on this team. So um, especially if if they want to shoot more threes, CJ Miles is going to be a big part of that. He went six of nine from deep in the first game, one of six from deep in the second game, and three of seven from deep in the third game. And we'll see how he does against the Warriors in the game that will happen the day that this podcast comes out. But it is interesting to see the Raptors sort of evolve into a more three-point heavy offense. And while obviously that isn't entirely due to C.J. Miles, he's certainly a big part of their ability to make that switch. Yeah, I don't understand. Like with him, I give him the green light, C.J. Miles to shoot whenever he wants to shoot. I I trust his three-point shot. But other guys that shouldn't be shooting threes to take threes, like Bebe took an, an open three uh, against the Spurs. He missed it. Like, even, I don't care it's open. Like, he shouldn't be taking that. I think DeLon Wright took two or three open threes. He missed them as well. Like, if you can't shoot, like, 20% on an open three, like, you can't take it. Like, it... It doesn't make sense. Yeah, DeLon Wright is 1 for 10 from three-point range so far this season. Yeah, he's played well uh, defensively and then uh, getting to the basket. But I wonder against like tougher defenders if he'll be able to get to the basket as well. Um, I think he's 6'5", so it's good size. But like if he's p- playing against Patrick Beverly, like, uh, that might not go well for him. So from the two big re-signings and then through the big free agent signing, now onto the contract extension for Norman Powell, who will see a much larger role this season after the departure of Corey Joseph. And although he's struggled from the floor so far this season, he's still one of the Raptors' best defensive players and someone who I think is arguably still underpaid on a four-year, $42 million contract. Yeah, um, 
I, I expected him to go into free agency this coming summer, and some bad team would throw like a four-year, sixty-million-dollar deal at him. Um, so I think this is this is a good contract. I think with with Powell, a lot of times people like just want to look at the stats for him, and sometimes he doesn't shoot well. Um, other times he's shooting really well. But the thing is, he's bringing a lot of energy. He's making big time like defensive plays. He's pushing in transition. He's doing all the little things. I think that sometimes goes unnoticed. So finally, in the offseason review, the Raptors selected OG Ananobi with the 23rd overall pick in the last draft. And he was expected to miss time as he recovered from the injury he suffered in college. Instead, he was ready to go on opening night and has been really impressive for a rookie, mostly on the defensive end, but he had one spin move into a dunk earlier this year that was the kind of play that you don't really see from a rookie, not to mention the fact that he's already looked like a better passer at the NBA level than he looked like in college. Yeah, I think coming in, I was thinking he'd be the Raptors' best wing defender, and it was kind of, I was kind of half joking, but um, he might be not only that, he might be one of the one of the Raptors' better interior defenders as well, because we've been playing him at power forward a lot. Uh, but offensively, I didn't expect to see anything from him, but he's making great passes, and I think his shot's a lot better than like it was in college, like. Like I remember watching tape on him, I'm like, oh, this guy cannot shoot. But uh, watching him, watching him play, I'm just like, there's nothing wrong with this shot. He, he looks pretty good. He's already a third of the way to his assist total from his freshman year at Indiana when he played 34 games, and I think that alone says quite a bit about just how far he's come as a passer since he entered college. Yeah, and I think with OG, I think a lot of people like now. Um, they want they want to compare him to somebody, and I want to hold off on that. Like people want to bring up Kawhi Leonard, he he's not Kawhi Leonard. He's not going to be Kawhi Leonard. Like that shouldn't be a thing. But like I guess if you want to compare mannerisms, he's pretty quiet like Kawhi. But in terms of a play, let's let's just enjoy him play. Let's not put any expectations on him yet, and. Let's just see what he becomes and enjoy it. I think that a lot of rookies in general just get thrown into comparisons because people want to see what's this guy going to turn into? What's he going to develop into? And ultimately, if you tried to do that with some of the best rookies over the past few years, and honestly, even some of the middle of the line rookies, you're going to get some ridiculous comparisons that don't end up making sense once the guys have actually had the chance to develop yeah i think a lot of times people will look at like body type and it's just just, like easy to just like oh he looks like this the such and such player but like also a a guy's game from college is going to change a lot when it gets to the nba because oftentimes uh good players in college like uh they're a huge focal point on their team but when they get to the nba especially in their early years they're more of a role player so their game i think really changes like with like you mentioned he wasn't passing a lot in college he's passing more now because 
he he's a role player now for the Raptors. He's not the best player on the team, so he's growing his game and he's doing other things. Let's move on from looking at the offseason into a very early review of their season. The Raptors are 2-1 at the moment after a close loss to the San Antonio Spurs and big blowouts in their first two games against Chicago and Philadelphia. And we already discussed this a little bit earlier on, but the thing that surprised me the most about the Raptors thus far this season is just how different their offense looks. And in particular, the fact that they went from one of the lowest three-point rates in the league last year to currently being fifth in the league in terms of three-point attempts per game. Yeah, I think based on matchup, I think that's going to impact how the Raptors play. Like, if the defender guarding DeMar DeRozan isn't very good, like, um, I believe it was the, the Philly game, Philly wasn't able to guard DeRozan, so, like, he could play in isolation a little bit, uh, because they don't have anybody to to contest him so like you're gonna go with what's working if there's a good defender on him then you got to kick the ball out and move it around and work for a good shot uh but if the defense is just giving you like DeRozan do whatever you want because we don't have anybody that can stop you you go with that you you do what you got to do to win so obviously DeRozan has started every game thus far not really much of a surprise although maybe he will miss this coming game with a fibers which we'll get into later but it's early on so maybe not much change should be expected but the raptors have tried two different starting lineups with four of the guys being the same and then baby noguera coming in for Jonas valanciunas after he went down with injury So I guess my question on that front is, do you think that the starting crew of DeRozan, Kyle Lowry, Ibaka, Norman Powell, and Valanciunas when healthy is the best starting crew for the Raptors? Or do you think there's a better way to sort of match up their players in the starting lineup? Yeah, I think that's the best lineup. That's the Raptors' best players. I think you play them. I think some people were thinking maybe C.J. Miles would start over Norman Powell. I think Norman Powell is better. He's more versatile. He does more things. Um, like C.J. Miles would would help stretch the floor a little bit better, I guess, if he was starting. But I don't think it, I don't think it really matters between the two of them. Like Norman Powell and C.J. Miles are both going to get their minutes. Um, I think you you just start Norman because he's better, but. I don't think it it changes a whole lot. Yeah, even though Powell has started the first three games and Miles has come off the bench, their minutes have been almost identical. Powell has played a total of 64 minutes, and CJ Miles has played a total of 62 minutes. So even though one of them technically gets to run out with the starters, really the two of them are playing basically equivalent roles. Yeah, like... It like in the end, it's not um, like maybe come playoff time it will matter. I think then um, you're gonna look at specific matchups, who's better against who. But uh, until then, like in the in the regular season, and the Raptors are still trying to probably figure things out with the rotations. Uh, it, it 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 doesn't really matter. And speaking of the rotations, let's move into the big man rotation and. 
we've talked about almost all of these players so far. So I wanted to particularly discuss the center rotation. Valanchunas and Baby Noguera have basically swapped roles after Valanchunas' injury, but Jakob Pertl has been really impressive so far this season. He's shooting a ridiculous 78.6% from the floor. He's been decently effective as a rim protector and has probably been doing a better job of that than Noguera, who's sort of more thought of as an athletic rim protector than Pirtle is. Do you think Pirtle is going to earn his way into more minutes this season, assuming health from Valanchunas and Noguera? Well, I think Valanchunas, he was playing really well in the preseason. He was playing well before he got injured. I think Valanchunas is still going to be the starter, but I think Pirtle is probably the clear backup at this point. Um, people refer to me as a JV stan. I'm a Pirtle stan. Like I was, I think I had a Pirtle top five on my draft board last year, and I was so happy when the Raptors drafted him. I don't think he's ever going to become an all-star, but just the way this guy plays, he plays so, so hard. He chases down misses. And he's, he's a much better rebounder than Bebe. And with Bebe, if he's not blocking shots, like, he's not doing a whole lot on the court. Like, uh, against the Spurs, he was Bebe was one of the reasons the Raptors were getting killed on the glass. Like, at, at seven feet, you gotta be a better rebounder. Like, people wanted to refer to Bebe last year as Bismack Biombo because of his shot-blocking ability. But, uh... Biombo at 6'9 is a good rebounder. Bebe at 7 feet, not so much for a big man. We also discussed the power forward spot a little bit, and something that you brought up that I think has been really interesting to look at so far this season is that OG Ananobi has spent more time at backup power forward than Pascal Siakam, who actually started quite a few games for the Raptors last season at power forward. Yeah, I think OG is better than Pascal Siakam already, which is kind of sad. Um, I think with Siakam, I never could really figure out what he did well. He had a lot of energy, but it really didn't convert into anything. Like in the D-League and in Summer League, uh, Pascal Siakam shot well from three, but last year for the Raptors, we didn't really see that. So like if Siakam developed a three-point shot, he would be useful, but if that's not there, I don't really know what he does. Whereas OG, um, he can battle defensively, and I think even offensively, OG might be better than Pascal right now, which is interesting. I think OG certainly fits in better on offense, just because unless Siakam develops that three-point shot, and by the way, he shot one of seven from deep last year and has missed his two three-point attempts so far this year, OG and Anobi might get more assists in his first 10 games than Siakam has in his entire career, which for those counting at home is a grand total of 19 assists across two seasons. And given that neither of them is really going to be the offensive focal point for the Raptors, probably ever, but certainly this season, I think it just makes more sense to play OG because if you're not going to get three-point shooting from either of them, you might as well get a guy who can keep the ball moving on offense. And OG has shown quite a lot more of that than Siakam has in his young career. Yeah, I think OG also has better basketball IQ. 
Like, I think that's where the good passes are coming from. Like, I've seen him where he has, like, a decent opportunity to make a, make a play to for a good shot. But he's going to pass it up so someone gets a better shot. And that's extremely valuable. Um, and I think, I actually wouldn't be surprised if OG starts, starts hitting some threes. Uh, he might not shoot a great percentage, but... I feel like he could make open threes. Like, his form is good. He was looking good in the preseason. Um, if a defender's on him, I probably wouldn't want him to shoot it, but I have confidence in OG. All right, let's move from the big man rotation into the wing and guard rotation. And I think the biggest surprise in my mind this season is that DeLon Wright is currently third on the team in minutes. And it does surprise me that he's getting significantly more minutes than Norman Powell, especially given that Wright is mostly a point guard and that position is pretty well locked down with Kyle Lowry. But other than DeLon's poor three-point shooting, which we talked about earlier, what have you seen from him so far this year? Well, like I mentioned, like he's very good at getting to the rim, but like I don't know, like cause the first game was against the Bulls. They don't have anybody that can guard him. And the second game was against Philly. They didn't really have anybody to really guard him. So, like, I don't know if he's going to have that that much success. But what I have noticed is the Raptors like to play him with Fred Van Fleet. And they both seem to play better together. So, I think that that's something to watch. Um, and that might be, might be a reason why Powell... Um, isn't getting as many minutes as he could be because Van Fleet is out there. Uh, but w- and one thing I did notice um, in the preseason is when DeLon Wright wasn't out there with Fred Van Fleet, he, he wasn't playing. Like, it was significantly worse. So I think you need that second playmaker with DeLon Wright for whatever reason. Uh, it just it helps him a lot. So you might see Wright more in that Corey Joseph role this season all right let's move on to your most recent article on the raptors for hashtag basketball where you ranked all 17 of the raptors contracts from worst to best and we're going to start with a man who will be getting paid quite a bit more next season but for now is on an incredible value contract and that's norman powell who's getting paid $1.5 million a year to start for what will probably be a home court team in the Eastern Conference playoffs. Well, when you're a second round pick, uh, the savings is big for a a team. And the Raptors uh, have been able to do a good job developing so far. Um, I think he can take the next step now and really show that he's worth uh, that extension. But at the same time, I I don't want to get like too enthused and be like, oh, he's gonna be a, he's gonna be an all star one day, because I I don't know if that that's even on the table. I think he's just gonna be a really good really good role player for the Raptors, and that's all I expect him to be. I mean, even if he isn't ever an all star at the moment, he's a starter, and even once his contract extension kicks in next season. million a year is still really cheap for a starter. So even if Powell does eventually return to maybe a sixth or seventh man role, he's still getting good value for the Raptors even once his salary grows 
exponentially next season. Yeah, and considering the Raptors were paying Damari Carroll $15 million, who was pretty awful for the Raptors last year, it's kind of also an addition by subtraction, losing Carroll, that now Powell, Casey is forced to play Powell. So I think that differential between Powell and Carroll is big. So I think that's going to be a big plus for the Raptors as well. The next two contracts on the list are Kyle Lowry and DeMar DeRozan. And you have them ranked in that order. And I would agree with that. I think that Lowry is still a better player than DeRozan and will probably be so next year as well. And once you get beyond that, you're sort of at an even value point in terms of their contracts. But the thing with DeRozan is that on the one hand, he's the kind of player that really does not do well by advanced numbers just because he struggles a lot on defense and he isn't the most efficient scorer on the offensive end. But on the other hand, if you could get a player to put up as many points as DeRozan does, even on average efficiency, you're doing a lot better than trying to distribute those shots among inferior players who aren't going to be able to get to that point of scoring at average efficiency like DeRozan can. Yeah, I think sometimes people get carried away with analytics and they want to just rank people by those advanced stats. But if you just watch DeMar DeRozan, you know he's a good player. Like, like I don't care like that the advanced stats say that he's not great. Like, he can he can carry an offense with his scoring. And he's, like, pretty consistent between, like, that 20 and, like, 25-point-per-game mark, uh, oftentimes scoring more than that and getting that 30-plus. So I think if the Raptors, like, people say, like, other lineups might have been better without DeRozan, but if you're putting another player in that lineup without DeRozan, you have to get the scoring from somewhere else. Uh, and I don't think the Raptors would have as much success without his scoring. So after Lowry and DeRozan, I don't want to spoil the entirety of the article because people should go on the hashtag basketball website and read the entire thing. So let's skip from number three all the way down to your favorite member of the Toronto Raptors and someone who you speak out in favor of anytime the Raptors come up, Bruno Caboclo. Yeah, Bruno, let's talk about him, you know? He's only like six months away from being six months away. You, you, you gotta be pumped for that. Uh, no, he, he's not an NBA talent. He shouldn't be in the NBA. I'm ranking the, the two-way contract guys ahead of him. Like, I don't really know. I haven't seen much of the, the two-way contracts guys. Um, I, I watched them a bit in preseason. I don't think they played a whole lot, but, but Bruno's just bad. Like, he cannot shoot. Um, he cannot play defense. Like, just watching Bruno, like, try and switch on defense is just, like, it, it hurts. Like, I just, I feel pain. Like, he just gets out of position. It's a free bucket for the other team. Um, so I do not expect Bruno to play outside of garbage time for the Raptors this year. At $2.5 million a year, it's just a waste of money, but it's his rookie deal. You can't really change that number. Uh, but... This coming summer, he will be a restricted free agent, uh, and I really hope the Raptors don't offer him the qualifying offer of $3.5 million because that would be even worse. I mean, look, the thing about Bruno is that 
at the time with the 20th overall pick and the Raptors where they were, it was a good bet by Masai. I mean, if it turned out well, then you end up with someone who's, you know, maybe 60% of Giannis. And for the 20th overall pick, that's a great hit. But it didn't work out. And Bruno's not an NBA player. You know, sometimes when you swing for the fences with those late first round draft picks, you end up with, say, I don't know, Kyle Lowry. And sometimes you end up with Bruno. And that's just how it is. I'm not going to give Masai a pass on this one. I like Masai. I like what he's been doing. But I believe like Rodney Hood fell like 10 spots in that draft. The Raptors could have had him. Um, I wanted Clint Capella in that draft because I remember uh, listening to a podcast with from Kevin Pelton. And he was saying, I believe Capella was like top five based on the, the analytics. And Capella has been pretty good in the NBA. The Raptors might not need a, need a center now. But at the time, uh, you know, Clint Capella... Would have been much better than Bruno. And uh, he's still always going to be better than Bruno. Let's quickly move on to talking about some of the early injuries for the Raptors before we look ahead to the rest of the season and beyond. And we've talked about most of these already, but DeMar DeRozan bruised his left thigh in the game against the Spurs, but he's likely to play against the Golden State Warriors. He continued to play in the game after that fibers, so clearly it's not going to be a long-term injury. I think that if DeRozan misses any time at all, it's going to be maybe one or two games, but this just doesn't seem like the kind of issue that's going to linger in the long term. Uh, well, if there's any question whatsoever that he might not be 100%, I'm sitting him. It's It's the Warriors. The Raptors aren't going to win this game. You don't want to risk it, but if he's healthy, yeah, yeah, I guess you play him. And the other thing with the Raptors, they mislead about injuries. Uh, in previous seasons, they, they've said guys have been day-to-day, and they end up missing weeks. So although it doesn't seem like this is anything for DeRozan, I'm always worried. So next on the docket, Baby Noguera hurt his ankle in the game against the Spurs. That looked a little worse in the flow of the game, but he's still listed as questionable, so it's also possible that he returns against the Warriors. I think unlike with DeRozan, where you might as well play him if he was healthy enough to continue playing in that Spurs game, I think it might be worth it to sit Bebe in this game and maybe just try Pirtle in the starting lineup, see how that works, because... As we've talked about throughout, the Raptors really need some rebounding help, and Pirtle's going to provide a lot more of that than Bebe would, especially if Bebe's hobbled with an ankle injury. Yeah, Bebe was limping in the Spurs game after the injury, so it's a little bit more concerning. But the problem is, um, Valanchunas is out, I believe, for the Warriors game. So if Bebe's out too, um, I guess that means like it's o- the Raptors will only have... Um, Hurdle and uh, Abaka available to play center, and then power forward becomes a bit of a mess if Abaka is playing more at center. So uh, I think it makes makes things a little more complicated. Even though Bebe hasn't been that good, I think um, it would it'd probably be better if he was available because if he's not if he's not available, then I think it puts more pressure on someone like Pascal Siakam to be a bigger part of the rotation. 
All right, let's move on to a future outlook, and let's start with the outlook for the rest of this season. And the first question I had is, what are Toronto's chances of earning home court advantage in the Eastern Conference playoffs? And I thought their odds were pretty good even before the Gordon Hayward injury. I had them fourth in the conference behind Washington, Boston, and the Cavaliers, but I thought it was a bit of a toss-up between the Wizards and the Raptors. With Hayward out for the rest of the season, I think the Raptors are in prime position to get home court advantage. Yeah, like, I'm super confident that the Raptors are going to finish in that 2-4 to four range. Um, I, I put those odds at pro- uh, getting home court probably at like 90%, but even if they don't, I, I don't think it really matters. Like, if, if, let's say the Raptors finish 5th instead of fourth or something like that or even instead of second like does it does it really matter like the the other teams in the east aren't great like and if you get like an extremely easy matchup in the first round uh the raptors might not prepare well for like the first game of the second round and we've seen in the past uh the raptors really struggle to prepare for a playoff series so i i'm not i I honestly don't really care what the Raptors do in the regular season. I just want them to be healthy and locked in for the playoffs. But I think it's it's extremely likely that they'll have home court advantage in, first, in the first round of the playoffs. And on that front, I think it's probably more important for the Raptors to try and delay the inevitable matchup with the Cavaliers than it is for them to try and get home court advantage. If they end up for some reason, as the sixth seed, and they're healthy for the start of the playoffs, and Cleveland is the one seed, I think that's a lot better of an outcome for the Raptors than if, say, they end up as the third seed and the Cavs are the second seed, and they have to play them in the second round. Yeah, we saw last year, Raptors did not fare well playing the Cavs in the second round. Uh, but the previous year, when they played them in the Eastern Conference Finals, they took two games off of them. So... Yeah, if you can stall it out, uh, I think I think it works out better. Uh, but at the same same time, uh, you're gonna still have that obstacle that you have to beat LeBron, and that is not going to be easy. So, on a similar front to the home court advantage question, what are Toronto's chances of winning the division? And I think this is a fun one to look at, not because the division matchups matter anymore, because they really don't, but because the Raptors in the middle of the offseason were rated as a 6.5 to 1 odds of winning the Atlantic Division by Vegas. And at this point, after the Gordon Hayward injury, I think it's a lot closer to flipping those odds than it is for the Raptors to be, say, 2 to 1 to win the division. I think that their odds of winning the division were pretty good even before the Hayward injury, just because I thought it would take Boston some time to gel. But at this point, I'm not really sure even who their competition is for that Atlantic Division title. Yeah, uh, before before the Hayward uh, injury, I would have put them at like even odds, maybe slightly lower. But now I think it's they have pretty pretty good odds. I'd say to win the division. Um, I feel good about it. But uh, like you mentioned, like divisions don't really mean much. So it'd be nice but I'm not going to celebrate a division banner. So moving on from a division banner to something that might be more worthy of celebration, 
how far can Toronto go in the playoffs? And I don't like putting ceilings on playoff teams just because any poorly timed injury to any team other than Golden State could really alter their playoff chances. But I think that unless LeBron gets injured, the Raptors have a pretty firm ceiling of the Eastern Conference Finals. I think they could make it a competitive series. And I think the Raptors and the Wizards stand the best chance of having a competitive series against the Cavs. But especially assuming that Isaiah Thomas will be healthy once the playoffs roll around, I just don't see any team in the Eastern Conference being able to beat them in a best-of-seven series. Yeah, that's that's the thing with the Raptors. People are saying that they should blow it up um, because they're they're not beating Cleveland or whatever. Uh, but I look at it as I don't think anyone's beating Golden State in a seven-game series in the playoffs, and I don't think 29 teams should be blowing it up. So I think the Raptors right now uh, should stay, stay the course um, and hope maybe someone becomes available at the trade deadline and the Raptors can try and upgrade somewhere and be more competitive. But the thing is, the Raptors don't, don't, don't have their draft picks because of unloading Damari Carroll. They owe a first-round pick and a second-round pick to the Nets. I believe the second-round pick is from the Magic, which the Raptors got for giving them Jeff Weltman. And then uh, the Raptors also owe their own second-round pick to the Suns, I believe. Um, and that was PJ, the P.J. Tucker deal. And before we wrap up, I just wanted to take a quick look ahead to what this Raptors team might look like in three years, in 2020, when they're getting to the end of the Kyle Lowry and Serge Ibaka contracts. And I think that even though the Raptors will be, in my mind, a worse team in three years than they are right now, barring a breakout or a spectacular trade, I think they're still probably a playoff team, even in a few years. And there's been a lot of talk about how Masai wanted to blow the team up before they had their recent run of success. But given that it will be nearly impossible to get equal value back from trading any of Lowry, Ibaka, or DeRozan, it might be worth it for them to stay the course and just be a bottom-tier playoff team, given how much this recent run of success has energized the franchise after a pretty rough start to the Raptors franchise. Yeah, I think it, it's interesting. It's like, what point do you say we've maxed out this team and you pull the plug? And you go backwards to hopefully get better. Like you, you're never gonna know when the right point in time is to do that. Even if the Raptors, at some like in the next two years, next three years, uh, start playing slightly worse, you don't know if it's the right draft. You don't know uh, with the new lottery rules whether you can take advantage of that as well. So I, I think it's it's tough. Also, crazy movement. Happen has been happening in the NBA. Like I, I don't, I don't know. Like it's impo- Like it's almost impossible to predict the future. Um, like DeRozan could get traded next year. I, I don't think he will, but he could. And then that just changes everything. I don't think you really know. Like predicting X number of years in advance. Um, but you're right. Like with uh, an aging Kyle Lowry and Serge Ibaka, 
it's it's hard to improve if if those are your core guys and you're not bringing in more talent. All right. Anything else you want to talk about before we wrap up? I think that there's not really a whole lot to read into much this season. I think a lot of people are blowing out of proportion that if the Raptors had Valanchunas in the Spurs game, uh, they would have beaten them because of his rebounding. They really needed that. And that's a point. But if the Spurs had Kawhi Leonard, the Raptors would have gotten blown out in that game. Like Kawhi Leonard... In my mind, he should have been MVP last year. He's a finals MVP. I like Valanchunas, but Kawhi Leonard's impact is so much more. Um, I think, like, these are these are small things. Don't, don't get carried away with anything. Just enjoy the Raptors playing basketball. Things will be up and down. Uh, the Raptors will go on winning streaks. They'll go on losing streaks. In the end, I think the Raptors will be good. And on that note... He is Jordan Kligman. You can find him on Twitter at 416basketball. You can also find his work on the hashtag basketball website. He's got a number of good pieces up on the Raptors, so you should definitely check that out. You can find me on Twitter at N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N, and you can also find my work on the hashtag basketball website. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please leave a rating and or a review on whatever podcast player you might be using. It really helps spread the word, and we certainly appreciate it. If you have any feedback, positive, negative, constructive, destructive, whatever you might have to say, please feel free to reach out to me either on Twitter or via email at nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening. (laughs) 